morning. Please feel free to change posture during the during the talk, but to as much as you can to stay upright and um, in a zazen posture uh, to the best of your ability. So, <clears throat> I want to start this morning with just a an old Zen phrase, uh, which is which is this, which is um, the moment you speak of a thing, you miss the mark. The moment you speak of something, you miss the mark. Um, I was somehow got caught up this week in reading this research by this this Harvard Medical School uh, researcher named Julian Keenan. It's older research. I think it's from the early 2000s, but it's still quite interesting. The research he did was into um, our, our sense of self, where that resides, where that resides in the brain. And he, um, what he did was he took a picture of Bill Clinton and uh, on his computer he took a picture of himself and, and then he uh, morphed the two pictures together. Okay. And uh, 50-50, right? 50-50. And then, and then he, he instantly, when he saw that, he instantly recognized himself in the photo. But when he showed it to everybody else, they recognized Bill Clinton. And so he, he got curious, what would happen with other people? And so he did the same thing. He didn't tell them what they were doing. He just showed them this, this morphed picture. And it turns out that the people seeing the photo recognize themselves in the photo rather than the, the men. In Bill. And I think he used um, Marilyn Monroe for the women. Uh, so so they, they saw themselves, but when they showed the picture to other people, they saw the famous person. So, so this, what was interesting to me about this is, and oh, so the, he termed this the self-effect. And I think you could broaden that out, couldn't you? I think this is what really what we do all the time, is we tend to see ourselves in everything. Our biases towards seeing the world through our own preconceptions. So I think this self-effect that he, rep- that he, he uh, uncovered, so to speak, really manifests itself all over the place. We don't only just see ourselves in these morphed pictures, but we see ourselves in everything. And so, um, this is uh, this the self bias is really part of the issue that we deal with in Zen practices. How can we see beyond that? How can we get beyond um, this self bias of of everything being filtered? Interestingly enough, this is maybe a side note, but he um, he found that this sense of self resides in the right part of the brain, the right hemisphere of the brain. If you anesthetize the right hemisphere, what happens is you don't see yourself in the photo anymore. You see the famous person. <coughs> so, 
we could just anesthetize our right half of the brain for just a moment, we might see things a little more clearly. So, so, so this research thing is interesting. Um, I find I find this kind of stuff fascinating. But one of the real threats that Buddhism faces in the West, in in America, uh, in particular is this threat of what I would say is appropriation. Um, and of course, when we normally hear this word appropriation, what we hear, what we tend to think of is cultural appropriation. Um, for people that don't know, I'm sure everybody knows, but a cultural appropriation more or less is when dominant culture, in this case white, you know, uh, dominant culture in America, um, co-ops takes from minority cultures and um, strips it of its original context and takes it in as their own, misappropriating culture, copying, stripping away. And um, I was thinking about that in terms of Buddhism. Of course, Buddhism has no authentic container. It doesn't, it it has no original sort of I guess you could say early Buddhism with the Buddha, but but Buddhism takes the characteristics of any culture that it moves to. It, does, it has no qualm with changing form as it moves from culture to culture. So it's not really dependent on that. Uh, so so cultural appropriation isn't so much the worry with Buddhist with Buddhism and with Zen practice, but. What I, what I find is actually happening is intellectual appropriation. You know, thinking about these research studies, for example, I just pointed at one. We uh, tend to see, we take the scientific method, you know, the scientific approach. Our culture has become so um, uh, reliant on the scientific method to assign value to things. We've kind of decided together that in order for something to be of value, it has to be proven scientifically. But what I want to just, and of course, I I don't really have a lot of dispute with that. There's a lot of truth in that. Um, I don't want to be taken as sort of not appreciating that. But I also want to point out that um, this is simply another lens that we're seeing the world through. Recently, um, over the last what year or so, that book, the, and I've spoken about it here before, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright has gotten a ton of press, and, and good press, I think, for the most part. Um, it's a good book, and it, and it really lays out how Buddhist ideas match up with evolutionary psychology, biology, uh, brain science, neuroscience, and that kind of thing. Um, but, but I wonder if, again, this isn't, um, isn't a sort of intellectual appropriation because what he did in that book is he, he takes the practices that he encountered in Buddhism and he filters them through scientific understanding. 
So in other words, this Buddhist concept equals this scientific concept, right? So he takes column A, right? Uh, the, you know, reincarnation or, or karma or, or uh, no self or whatever you might be. Column A, Buddhist concept, and then column B um, is some equivalent in modern scientific understanding, right? And he says, okay, well, you know, if, if I can prove somehow scientifically that this Buddhist concept equals some sort of scientific equivalent, uh, then it makes sense. And I think this is what a lot of readers get from the book. And, and so, of course, we might say to ourselves, well, what's wrong with that, right? After all, isn't, isn't you know, this kind of rational skepticism important? Um, and it is, um, because, because we are prone to fall into magical thinking as, as a species. We tend to, to, to do that. And so uh, there's, I have no problem with that, um, but only to a certain extent, because I think the danger um, isn't that we apply rigorous standards to what we choose uh, to practice or to believe, the danger is in thinking that when it passes those rigors of science and intellectual skepticism, the danger is that we get it, that we understand it. If it passes our sort of intellectual test that we believe, okay, that's it, I got it. And Buddhism does make a lot of sense. More and more people are waking up and going, wow, okay, there's a lot here that makes sense intellectually. You know, suffering, the cause of suffering, impermanence. I don't know about the no-self thing. People probably are going, what the heck is that? But... Uh, but, but, but what we do is we go, yeah, permanence. I get it. Makes sense. Check. You know? And then, and then we go, oh, yeah, I'm a Buddhist. I, I identify as a Buddhist. I, you know, I love this. I, this. This whole thing is I identify. You know? I identify as a Buddhist. Please don't identify. <laughs> One more layer that you're going to have to get over. But when we, when we identify so clearly with something, the downside is that we may put aside a deeper part, a deeper, because we put a check mark next to it. Got it. Done. So one of the biggest optical obstacles to Buddhist practice is not skepticism, but belief. I want to read a letter that I got from a teacher friend of mine that kind of gets at this. I'll just launch right into it. it says, um, Sensei. Oh, well, let me, let, me, let me give a little, just a, a, a few seconds of qualifying or what this is about. This, is, this came from a seminary student, a Lutheran seminary student, who um, this teacher friend of mine taught a course at a, at a seminary and uh, co-taught it with... Um, a group of other scholars and teachers from other tr- faith traditions, Islam, Christianity, and different, different uh, teachers. And so this was sort of like uh, uh, these, these seminary students had to take this class 
uh, this, this world religions type of thing. And it was actually quite, uh, he said, quite engaging. So this is one of the Lutheran seminaries writing to him. And he said, Sensei, I have a question about Buddhism, the Buddhist discussions we've been having in class on Wednesday night. And I'm wondering if you could help or at least give me a gentle nudge in the right direction. My question is, what am I not getting? <laughs> Here's my problem. Everything you've said makes sense to me. And the fact, and that fact makes no sense at all. Hey, if that doesn't sound zen. It's all coming too easy. He says, yes, I get that we're all simply an amalgam of perceptions. After all, we interact with the world around us through our senses. And I don't mind adding mind to those things that we perceive. Or, no, I'm sorry. I don't adding, mind adding mind. Mind is one of the senses in Buddhism. Um, to those senses, since we think about and rationalize and synthesize our perceptions in order to infer things that we can't perceive otherwise and how we can really trust that our perceptions are equal to reality, especially when, or we can't trust that they're equal to reality, especially when experience tells us that what we perceive isn't always entirely accurate. And since we define ourselves by, by what we are not, how can we say we are anything more than those perceptions? Rene Descartes said much the same thing, though he fouled it up when he came to his famous cogito ergo sum, is that how you say it? So you need to call even your own existence into question. He at least was headed in the right direction at the beginning of his meditations. That's Rene Descartes. So yes, that makes sense, and I get it. Yes, I get that everything is transitory. Everything will eventually decay and be reborn as something else. And that includes me. And you're right, I am not the same person I was an instant ago. I see it. I've changed. Whether it is one more word expressed in type or one more neuron having fired or what have you. Who I was, who, who I was dead and now is dead and now I'm somebody new. A different amalgam of perceptions and preconceptions. And if we're attached to the state we're in, we'll be quite disappointed when we come to the awareness that we've lost it. And yet, nothing has ever truly been lost. I get that. I get that I've always gotten that. <laughs> Though perhaps I've not been able to put that into terms before. And frankly, it's even affected the way I grieve losses. You get the idea of what I'm saying. I agree with just about everything you've said this term. In fact, I'd be hard-pressed to find something I didn't agree with. Now, my problem isn't trying to resolve a conflict between my vocation as a future Lutheran pastor and my affinity towards your Dharma teaching. I don't actually see a conflict as, as yet, anyway. Well, you may. Eventually. Uh, my problem is that I think I really get it, and I think I shouldn't yet. I haven't had to struggle with these concepts and meditate on their truth and resolve conflicts in thinking or any of that. It seems to me that if the Buddhist tradition, 
spends a great deal of time meditating on these doctrines, then I certainly shouldn't be able to accept them quite so easily. You even said something to that effect yourself the first day of class. So what have I missed? This is a complex and ancient faith tradition, and I shouldn't just be able to say, yeah, I get it quite so easily. Any thought on this you have would be welcome. Sincerely, Sebastian. Isn't that a great letter? Very sincere person. So what can we say to someone like this? Because in the end, he's right. He, he does get it, and yet he doesn't. He does get it, but he doesn't get the depth of the tradition of what's being offered. So what can we offer? Let's offer a case number 23 from the Shoyuroku, the, the book of equanimity. It's a book of 100 cases or koans. Take a look at that very briefly. Case number 23 goes like this. Every time Master Lutsu saw someone coming, in other words, a monk, every time he saw somebody coming, he would immediately face the wall. Later, a brother monk of Lutsu's named Nansen said about this, he said, well, I usually tell my people to realize what has existed before the universe unfolded or to understand that was that what was uh, to understand what was been excuse me what has been before buddhas appeared in the world still i can't get anyone enlightened or even half enlightened if lutsu continues that way he'll go on even till after the year of the donkey and that's the end of the case so it's two parts the first part Every time Lutsu saw a monk coming, he would sit and face the wall, turn and face the wall. And then later, hearing about that, Nansen commented on that. I usually tell my people to realize what has existed before the universe unfolded, or to understand what has been before Buddhas appeared in the world. Still, I can't get anyone enlightened or even half enlightened. If Lutsu continues that way, he'll go on until after the year of the donkey. So we don't know much about Lutsu historically, but we do know he was a disciple of the great master Matsu, which was one of the early Chinese Chan masters. And Nansen is a brother monk of his who was the teacher of Chao Chou or Joshu, uh, Joshu's Mu for some of you. So these two brother monks. This is a very similar story to the story, at least the part about Lutsu. This is very similar to what we hear about Bodhidharma, the founder of Zen in China, who his teaching was sitting facing the wall for nine years. When people came to see him, he just continued to sit. Nine years facing the wall. So, 
So books, going back to the book, Why Buddhism is True for a Second, uh, might feel a little disjointed, but just for a second. Books like Buddhism, Why Buddhism is True, are enticing because, and, and this, goes, this is true with Buddhist concepts in general, they're enticing because they stimulate the intellect. They're agreeable with the intellect. Even if we may have some qualms or disagreements, they're still exciting in a sense. They still get the intellect going. Lutsu's method is not that tantalizing, is it? Sitting facing the wall. Every time someone would come to him for instruction, he would turn and face the wall. Can you imagine if you came here for the first time, or even the second, third, uh, even for a while? If you came to a Zen center and expecting to get some instruction, instead, I just turned and faced the wall. What would you think? You might, you know, might think that guy's rude. You know, I'm not coming back there. That kind of thing. How would that sit with you? Would you feel insulted? Lutsu is inviting us to experience something much deeper. Lutsu is demonstrating the practice of Zazen. In, in the Soto school of Zen, they sit, we sit, facing the wall. In this Zendo, we sit facing out, partially because of practicality reasons. If we all moved our mats in, we'd have to, we'd lose a lot of space in the Zendo, face the wall. But, this, but in the Rinzai school of Zen, they sit facing, we sit facing each other. But regardless of how we sit in the zendo, Lutsu is inviting us to face a different kind of wall. What, what is he inviting us to face? In one way, you could say that he's telling us that we don't need instructions. We don't need more speculation. What we need actually is more practice. Facing the wall really means facing the wall of ourself. Facing the wall of the sense of separation that so many of us feel. That sense of being imprisoned facing it directly. Turning inward rather than outward, facing an interior wall. Turning towards silence, introspection, which of course is our natural condition. But it's also turning towards that sense of dissatisfaction that we all feel sense of something not being right. Zen, Zen asks us to face that directly. Metaphorically speaking, you could say that Lutsu is turning his back on the conceptual mind. He's turning his back on that part of us that wants to be tantalized, 
wants to be uh, engaged intellectually. It's a tricky thing teaching Zen. Because if, if you say, if you speak, you fall into concepts. But if you don't speak, of course, then you mislead people. Lutsu is reminding us that we don't need to look outside of ourselves for what we seek. And again, he's telling us that he has nothing to give us. He's presenting. So, Nansen, hearing of Lutz's method, said, I usually tell my people to realize what has existed before the universe unfolded. Simple, right? Yeah, just go realize what existed before the universe unfolded. Um, I don't know, uh, maybe most of you are aware, the physicist Stephen Hawking just died recently. And he did an interview not too long ago with Neil deGrasse Tyson, another well-known physicist. And they got into um, Hawking's explanation about what happened before the Big Bang. In other words, what happened before the universe unfolded. He says, Hawking says, if you rewind far enough, which is about 13.8 billion years, the entire universe shrinks to the size of a single atom. This subatomic ball of everything is known as the singularity. Inside this extremely small, massively dense speck of heat and energy, the, law, the laws of physics and time as we know them cease to function. Put another way, time as we understand it literally did not exist before the universe started to expand. Rather, the arrow of time shrinks infinitely as the universe becomes smaller and smaller, never reaching a clear starting point. You know, as, as, as tantalizing as Hawking's ex explanation is, it's just theoretical. It really doesn't help us. But Master Nansen, he's saying something different. He says, remember, he says, I usually tell my people to realize what existed before the universe unfolded. This, this word realize is what is the crucial word. Realize it. Not just intellectually get it. Realize it for yourself. That seminary student, he, he got it, but he hasn't realized it. This is what is different about Zen practice. It, it encourages us to embody and realize the teachings ourselves. Master Nansen continues, he says, 
to understand. Um, he says, I also, he says, I encourage people to understand what was, what has been before Buddhas appeared in the world. Still, I can't get anyone enlightened or even half enlightened. If Wu Tzu continues on that way, he'll go on even after the year of the donkey. So understand what was before Buddhas appeared in the world. What does Nansen mean by that? Of course, he's pointing us back to this essential world before concepts, before divisions, before right and wrong, this and that, us and them. Before we start limiting people, before we start limiting ourselves, this is a crucial point. To understand true emptiness is really to understand this world that has no limit, that we have no limit, that that is just an idea that you have. Our true condition. Before Buddhas appeared in the world, before there was concepts, before we impose our, imprison other people with our ideas and thoughts, we're completely free. So this idea, he says, I can't even, I can't get someone enlightened or even half enlightened. Certainly he had Dharma errors. I mean, Joshu, Master Chao Cho is one of his Dharma errors. So what is he pointing to? I can't get somebody enlightened or even half enlightened. Really, from a training point of view, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing a teacher can do. They just have to wait for people to realize it themselves. But I think there's something else he's pointing to here. I can't get anybody enlightened or even half enlightened. Of course you can't, because you can't get enlightened. You're already enlightened, right? If you have no limits, then what are you lacking? And then, of course, he finishes with, if Lutsu continues that way, he'll go on even until after the year of the donkey. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Chinese astrology. If you, if you look at those placemats on the, you know, the, the restaurant, the Chinese restaurant, there is no year of the donkey. There is no year of the donkey. What is he saying there about Lutsu? It sounds almost like he's putting him down. He's kind of doing a put down. Ah, you know, Lutsu goes on like that. But actually, it may be more of a compliment. He's really perhaps praising Lutsu. In the essential world, there are no astrological signs. There is no year of the donkey. There is no concept. He's beyond time, beyond space, beyond the teachings or Buddhas just faces the wall. We all have that. 
potential to understand ourselves. We all have the potential to really understand Buddhism, to really get it. We, we can't, we shouldn't sell ourselves short. And what I mean by that is partially this intellectual understanding, not settling for that. Not just settling for that. And not just settle because that's not only selling ourselves short, that's selling the tradition short. There's much more. So to this seminary student and to all of us, we might think we get it. But Zen practice asks us to go further, go deeper. Remember Master Dogen said that the further out you go, the deeper it gets. So that's why we're practicing here. We have to kind of face our own wall, face our own limits to our understanding. So that's what I have for today. Does anybody have any, we have just a few minutes before we have to end with the four vowels. Does anybody have anything they'd like to ask or bring up? It doesn't have to be about this. It can be about really anything. Um, and then we'll, as soon as, as soon as that's over, we'll recite the four vowels. Um, yeah. In the last chant that we did, it says, uh, 